me, Sison. There we go. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Steve, I do want to say, uh, Steve was here. I teach in the Bereans class, and he was here early setting the thermostat at what they always set it at, 68 degrees. 68 never felt warmer in all my life today, so thank you. Appreciate that. If you'll take your Bibles, we're going to, uh, we, hopefully you guys finished second, or First Kings last week. And we're going to look in Second Chronicles uh, verses, or chapters 19 and 20 this morning. I entitled my lesson, uh, Lessons from the Life of a King. Last August, I went to a seminar, and the person presenting in the seminar just kept talking about uh, writing things down in a thought catcher. I'd never heard what a thought, I, I, didn't, I just didn't understand her. And I look around and she'd say, get out your thought catcher, we'll do this. Get out your thought catcher, we're doing that. And I'm looking around to those who are in this seminar, they're not doing anything, so I just sit there and I don't do anything either. During the break, I needed to ask her a question because I needed help on this certain thing that we, I was working on. And uh, she said, well, get out your thought catcher. And I thought, okay, now I've, I've got to let her know that I have no clue what she's talking about. And I and I kind of said that, I have no clue what you're talking about. She goes, that thing you take notes on. I said, you, you mean the notes paper? And she said, yeah. And I said, okay, why do we call it a thought catcher? And she goes, totally serious. She said, well, it's coming out of California. If you're from California, I am not, I'm not bashing you. But she, I, seriously, she said, she said, um, uh, we're finding that students have anxiety <laughs> over taking notes. So we call it a thought catcher. And I said, oh, okay. I said, oh, so help me understand this. The process is the same, but just changing the name reduces the anxiety. She said, that's it. And I said, okay. Well, I appreciate knowing that. <laughs> On your table, I've, I'm not going to call it a thought catcher. <laughs> you have some structured notes there to take some notes. Uh, if you have anxiety over this, come after and I'll show you where in the Word you can get rid of your anxiety, okay? <laughs> Be anxious for nothing, right? You know, God is so gracious to us. He, he gives us a glimpse into the lives of individuals who love Him. Now, these lives uh, of these people who love God are not perfect. Uh, and sometimes they make bonehead mistakes. They make ungodly choices. Uh, but nonetheless, their lives are forever recorded in God's eternal Word to teach us so that we can learn from them, that we can avoid the pitfalls in their lives and that we can embrace the good things that they, they choose to do. Um, in Second Chronicles chapter 19 and 20, and Lord willing, we will get through that. Uh, no one told me what time I'm supposed to end in this class, but I heard that if, as long as I beat Pastor Tom, I'm okay, right? Oh, I've got lots of time then. Okay, what time do we end in? Whatever? Okay. All right, if you guys start falling asleep, then I'll end. All right, here we go. Uh, in Second Chronicles chapters 19 and 20, it records for us the, the life of King Je Jehoshaphat. And we're just going to take a flyby this morning 
And we're gonna, there's some things that we can learn from this king of Judah uh, that we can apply to our own lives as we get a glimpse into his, his own heart. And, and that's my prayer this morning for all of us, uh, that we will able to take something away from this that, that's going to change us. Last week, I'm assuming you were in 1 Kings 22, and Jehoshaphat does make a, a, a bad decision. King Ahab comes to him in, in 1 Kings 22.4 and, and asks him, will, will you go to war with me? Will you go to war with me? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, before seeking counsel of the Lord, before going to the, to the Lord to find out what God would have him do, before doing this, he says, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses, okay? That is an emphatic, yes, I will come alongside you. I will align myself with you to do this. You know, and sometimes I was just joking in my mind, it's scary for me to tell you what goes through my mind a lot, but I was just thinking, wouldn't it be fun to talk like this today? Uh, my wife, Carla, and I have three children. They're grown, and they all got married within 11 months of each other. And so the last couple of years, we've been moving our children out of their single apartment into a new apartment that they're going to share with their spouse. And then they all bought houses, and so then we moved them out of their that apartment into their homes and, and don't get me wrong as a father it's I'm glad that I can do something like that I'm glad I'm able to help my children in in that regard and I, I did notice that they did ask me you know when it would be convenient for me to help them move and you know anytime it you know I give them my schedule and yes I want to help you emphatically I want to help you but I wish I would have responded this way <laughs> I am as you are my truck is your truck my muscle, your muscle, you know, but <laughs> nonetheless, did not go that far, okay? Uh, but as we continue in 1 Kings, as you did last year, or last week, uh, 1 Kings 22, we see that this battle didn't fare well with King Ahab. In fact, we see God's final judgment on a man who at every turn, because of his sinful pride, chose to oppose God in everything. And so we see his demise. We see his end. The king of Israel was defeated. And the people were scattered. As the prophet said in 1 Kings 22 would happen. And that's where we pick up in our story in 2 Chronicles 19. Look at verse 1. It says, And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem, Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord, and so bring wrath upon yourself from the Lord? This is a stiff rebuke from Jehu. It's also the first lesson that we learn, and it's a negative lesson. For your notes, we are to avoid unbiblical relationships unbiblical alliances uh, and we see that Jehoshaphat falls into this again uh, and we're going to go quickly uh, here in a second to to chapter 20 and we'll see this again but here in verse 2 Jehu is speaking of Jehoshaphat's alliance with kings with the Israel's king King Ahab 
And we said that, that King Ahab was a wicked king. He even caused the nation of Israel to sin against God. And he's condemning Jehoshaphat for this unbiblical alliance with a pagan king. And he says here, should you, should you help the wicked and love those who hate you? That word love here, it carries the idea of political ties and not emotional ties. And, and he's condemning Jehoshaphat for entering into and helping in an alliance with one who hates God, one who hates our Lord. And this is not the only time that we see this happen in Jehoshaphat's life. I need for you to take your Bibles and turn to chapter 20 now and look towards verse 35. <clears throat> chapter 20, verse 35. Ahab is, is, is gone. He's dead. <clears throat> and his son Azahiah is now king of Israel. In verse 35, Judah... Jehoshaphat aligns himself with Azahiah. Look at the end of verse 35. Look what it says. It says, and he acted wickedly in so doing. And then it talks about, you know, he aligned himself. They were going to make ships to go to Tarshish. They made their ships in Eazon um, uh, Geber. And then Eliezer the, uh, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying that because you've allowed, uh, allied yourself with Azahiah, the Lord has destroyed your works, so the ships were broken and could not go to Tarshish. And we don't know why Jehoshaphat did this. We, we don't understand, but he repeats this sinful act. He just does. You know, but God, by his grace, still works through this king. Uh, he should have avoided aligning himself with, with wicked kings and we need to remember that that the nation of israel was was set apart by god to bring witness to the world uh, of his grace and of, of his salvation the nation of israel was set apart to emulate god's attribute of holiness as the children of israel were called were call, called to love and serve god uh, and to separate themselves from immorality and uncleanness so too believers must heed the sovereign call of God and, and reflect His image and obey Him in all His commands. We're called to be holy as He is holy. I need for you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians, New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to us. And in verse 14, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, we learn that we're not to be bound together with unbelievers. And then the Apostle Paul begins to ask these rhetorical questions. Look what he says. He says, For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch 
what is unclean. And I will welcome you. In verse 18, he says, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The Apostle Paul is telling us here that saving faith in Jesus Christ produces a radical transformation in the life of the believer in every aspect of that person's being. Christians are new creatures that have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. We're no longer bound to Satan. We're bound to God. Believers and unbelievers inhabit two separate worlds, different worlds. Christians are in Christ's kingdom, which is characterized by righteousness and light, eternal life. Unbelievers belong to Satan, which is characterized by lawlessness and darkness and spiritual death. Now, don't get me wrong here. Make sure you understand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that we are to void unbelievers completely. That would be impossible, and that's not scriptural. That's not what the Bible teaches. However, we need to remember that our relationships with, with a believer and an unbeliever, those relationships are temporal and external. We will still have relationships with unbelievers. It could be a spouse that's an unbeliever or our children that are unbelievers. We still have that relationship. We have relationship with perhaps a boss who's unbelieving or our coworkers are unbelieving. We may enjoy the same hobbies and the same pastimes as unbelievers. We may hold the same political views. But we need to remember this is all temporal. On a spiritual level, believers and unbelievers live in two completely separate worlds. You know, as believers, we cannot live in both worlds. We're reminded in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, it says, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. James 4.4 4 reminds us that you adulteresses, do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward, toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The focus of our relationship with unbelievers is to be a light in their lives. Uh, we need to lead them to the truth of the gospel. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to show you this another way. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, the context of this passage is with Christian liberty. You know, we have the liberty to do the things that are not explicitly forbidden in Scripture, as long as we do not sear our, our conscience. However, the Apostle Paul is speaking of using or refusing to use our Christian liberty, all for the sake of bringing others to a personal response or a personal repentance in the belief of of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 19, 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he says, 
For though I am a f- free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may all means save some. And so we are to avoid unbiblical relationships, unbiblical reliances. And and the application for us here is that we need to remember that the sole purpose of our relationships that we have with unbelievers is to bring the light of the gospel to them. And when I say that we need to avoid these relationships, we need not align ourselves with them. And how do you tell if you're aligned with a in an unbiblical relationship? If that unbeliever has more of an influence over your life than you do with that person. And that's what we see with with King Jehoshaphat. Okay, he made an ungodly alliance with King Ahab. He had King Ahab had more of a uh, an influence in Jehoshaphat's life. Turn back to Second Chronicles 19. And this is why I believe Jehu is, is, is rebuking Jehoshaphat. And we, we see in verse 2 that, that there is this rebuke. In verse 3, he does commend Jehoshaphat. Look what he says in verse 3, 2 Chronicles 19.3. He says, But there is some good in you, for you have removed the Asheroth from the land, and you have set your heart to seek God. That, that phrase here where it says, set your heart to seek God, it carries the idea of being fixed upon or being securely established in. And that's what Jehoshaphat has done in early on in his life. And, and Jehu reminds Jehoshaphat of what he had previous, previously committed his life to. I need for you to take your Bibles and turn back a couple of pages to, to chapter 17. 2 Chronicles 17. Jehoshaphat takes the throne when his father Asa passes. And in verse 3, it it says that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed in the example of his father David's earlier days and did not seek the the balls. But sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, and did not act as Israel did. So the Lord established the kingdom in his control, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, And he had great riches and honor. He took great pride in the ways of the Lord and again removed the high places in the ashram from Judah. In in verses 7 and 8, we learn that Jehoshaphat sends out godly men in the area to go ahead and teach Judah the scriptures so that they can understand who God is and how God desires to be served and worshiped. So he sends these godly men out to do that. In verse 9, he says, They taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They taught directly with the scriptures how who God is and how we're supposed to respond to him. And they went out through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. And now the dread of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the land which were around Judah. So they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. Go ahead and turn back to chapter 19. 
Now, Jehoshaphat did not just send representatives to go out and teach the people. Look what it says in verse 4. It says that he went out with them. Look what it says. It says, Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem and went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. This is the area that we're talking about here. And this is the area where Jehoshaphat would go out with the word of the God, with the word of the Lord, and he would go out with godly men to go teach people who God is and how we're supposed to respond to him. And this brings us to our second lesson that we learned from Jehoshaphat, that we are ambassadors for Christ's kingdom. We are ambassadors for Christ's kingdom. Once again, I need for you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You didn't know this was going to be a Bible drill, did you? <clears throat> and once again, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to us and telling us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Look at this. And gave us this ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, so oftentimes in our lives as we we can get distracted in this world, we've got to go to work this week. You know, how many people have tomorrow off? Yeah, so do I. Isn't that great? We might have Tuesday off, too. So, you know, I don't know. But we get so distracted in this world as to what our purpose is in life. This passage in 2 Corinthians reminds us of our distinctives, not only as a church, not only as the the corporate body of Christ, but as individuals who make up that body. This is our distinctive. The church's mission is evangelism. This passage clearly articulates the heart and soul of our responsibility as we represent Christ to the world. God has called every believer, not just pastors, not just elders, to proclaim the message of reconciliation. The glorious good news of of the gospel that lost sinners can be restored to a holy God. What a message that we have. Look again in verse 18. He says, not only the, not now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ from the foundation of the world. God freely and apart from any outside influence determined to save sinners to an eternal display of the glory of his grace. He chose those he would rescue from his own wrath on sin. And this verse clearly teaches us that that being reconciled to God is solely an act, a work of God. It's not something that man does. It's what he receives. 
It's not what man accomplishes, but what he embraces when he repents and believes. I like how John MacArthur says it. John MacArthur says it this way, Reconciliation does not happen when man decides to stop rejecting God, but when God decides to stop rejecting man. He goes on and says, you know, God was in, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him in verse 19. And then it says that he committed to us this word of reconciliation. We are the ambassadors, verse, verse 20. God reconciles man to himself. Then he gives us this blessing to be reconcilers to the world. All who are in Christ now are his ambassadors. I think uh, by way of application for this, I think it's important for us to be reminded in a nutshell here just the essentials of the gospel. You know, when you preach a false false gospel, there's going to be a false profession of faith. And we've got to get it right. We've got to understand this. And so, the first essential element of the gospel is that God is the creator of all things. God has created all things. There is only one conclusion. We are all accountable to Him. Isaiah 45, 11-12 says, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, look at this, and His Maker, the Creator, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their hosts. God is the creator and everyone and everything created is accountable to him, period. Second essential element is that man has fallen short of God's perfection and therefore deserves his eternal wrath. Ezekiel 18, 4 says, Behold, all the souls of are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this brings us to the third essential element. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is God's only provision for man's sin. Isaiah 53 but Jesus was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our, our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourgings, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has, has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's not just good enough to know those three. I can know those three, be happy with my life, and walk away. But the fourth essential element of the Gospel is that it's not enough to intellectually acknowledge these truths. One must choose 
to submit to them. One must choose to repent. I was once in a church that struggled with that word repent. Uh, We didn't stay in that church very long. But it was really sad. They struggled with the word repent. But yet, Jesus used it all the time. When Jesus began His preaching ministry, Mark 1 tells us, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn back to 2 Chronicles chapter 19. So we have Jehoshaphat who goes out through all the land and he teaches the men about salvation, about who God is, how they are to respond to him in faithful service and faithful worship. But he just didn't do that. We also see at the end of, from verses 5 through 11 to the end of chapter 19, that, that he appoints leaders in every place who exhibited qualifications of spiritual leadership. Look what he does in verse 5. He appointed the judges in the land and all the fortified, fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, Consider what you are doing, for you, are, you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the, the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. In Jerusalem also, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites and priests and some of the heads of the, uh, of the fathers' households of Israel for the judgment of the Lord to the judge uh, disputes among the inhabitants of the Jerusalem. And look at the instructions that he gives here. In verse 9, he charges them saying, You shall do in the fear of the Lord faithfully and wholeheartedly. When any disrupt, uh, dispute comes to you, from your brother who live in their cities, between blood and blood, between law and commandment, statutes and ordinances, you shall warn them, so that they may not be guilty before the Lord. The wrath and that wrath may not come upon you and your brethren. Thus you shall do, and you will not be guilty. And then he goes on and says, Behold, Amariah the chief priest will be over you and all that pertains to the Lord. And, and Zebediah the son of Ishmael the ruler of the house of Judah and all, their, all that pertains to the king. Also the Levites shall be officers before you. Act resolutely and the Lord will be with the upright. And from this passage, we learn our third lesson. And in this passage, we're, we're reminded of what spiritual leadership looks like. What spiritual leadership looks like. Spiritual leadership is accountable to Ability to God. Spiritual leadership is accountability to God. Look at verse 6 again. It says, Consider what you're doing, for you do not judge for man, but you judge for the Lord who is with you when you red- render your judgment. So, spiritual leadership, growing spiritually, becoming a spiritual leader, understands that we're accountable to God in all that we do and all that we say. Another characteristic of spiritual leadership is integrity and honesty. Verse 7. Now when 
Now then, let the, the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do. For the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. Next, spiritual lead, leadership is, is loyalty to God. Loyalty to God. Verse 9, you shall do in the fear of the Lord faithfully and wholeheartedly. Someone once said that loyalty to God is just being concerned with God's reputation. Being concerned with God's reputation. Another aspect of spiritual, spiritual leadership is, is concerned with righteousness. And then when any dispute comes to you from your brethren who live in their cities, between blood and blood, between law and, and commandments, statutes and ordinances, you shall warn them so that they may not uh, so that they may not be guilty before the Lord. You know, so oftentimes I think what he's saying here is it's so easy to judge between this person and this person. And it's just like, yeah, I like you. So I'm going to judge in your favor. I don't like you. I'm not going to judge in your favor. And so we need to be concerned with righteousness is what Jehoshaphat is saying here. Be concerned with judging with what the word says. And then finally, spiritual leadership is having courage in God. Having courage in God. Act resolutely, verse 11 says. And the Lord be with the upright. Our application for this, what we learn here is just that, you know, in the next week on your, on your way home today as you're bunkered down from the storm that's coming, just evaluate these characteristics in your own heart. Where are you growing? Where are you strong in? Thank God for what he's doing in your life. And then those characteristics that you need to grow in, ask God, seek God to help you to grow in those other areas. This brings us now to chapter 20. Chapter 20, it says, Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Meunites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and, and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from, the, from beyond the sea, out of Aram. And behold, they are in the uh, Hazazon Tamur, or that is the Injeti. And here is a picture of what we're talking about here. This is where they're coming from. There's where they have encamped. And the distance from Jerusalem to Injeti in, in there is 20 five miles i probably shouldn't have done that oh yeah i did okay we're good so it's 25 miles the distance there where they've encamped they're on their doorstep waiting to uh, uh, take control of jerusalem and if you look at verse three jehoshaphat has two responses look at his first response verse verse three Je jehoshaphat was afraid okay that's an appropriate response in this situation but look at his immediate second response. Look what it says here. Jehoshaphat turned his attention to seek the Lord. Then he calls on the nation to do the same. Uh, look at uh, verse 3. It says that Jehoshaphat proclaimed a fast throughout all of, of Judah. Verse 4. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. You know, would this not be mind-blowing if we had a Jehoshaphat 
type person leading Israel today. Can you imagine? Well, the world would think Jehoshaphat or whoever was leading is an idiot. But the rest of us as believers, we would be alongside him. Yes, this is the Lord's battle. Can you imagine that going on today? What a difference it would be. But don't get me wrong, God's in control. He has every leader where he has them for his purpose. You know, as I was studying this passage, my question that kept coming to my mind was, what kind of man or woman has the inclination to quickly seek God in times of trouble? What kind of person goes to God first when trouble comes? Not everybody goes to God first when trouble comes. It's normally a last result or the last resort. And again, Scripture is very clear that we do not seek God in and of ourselves. Uh, Romans 3 is very clear. There's none who seeks God. Our sinful flesh is hostile towards God. If anybody seeks God, it's because God has already done a work in that person's heart. Jesus said in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But with that in mind, let me ask you, and I would like some response from you. What drives a person to have his or her first response to call upon God in times of trouble? Well, let me rephrase that. What are the characteristics of a person who diligently seeks God, even in times of trouble? What do you think? Humility. Humility. Understands who he is in front of God. Yeah, humility. Any else? Trust. Seeking first the kingdom of God in his heart. Yeah. Yeah, someone who's daily disciplined, already doing that. So when the trouble comes, it's just like habit. It's habit. Very good. Anybody else? Fear and reverence. Yeah. Here's some that I came up with, and we're going to see some of these as we, as we look at Jehoshaphat's prayer here in a moment. But this uh, brings us to our next point. Characteristics of a God-seeker. And some of these we already talked about. A God-seeker is someone who intimately knows God. Intimately knows God. Okay, so there's that relationship there. He's forgiven of his sins. Psalm 910 says, And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. That word know in, the, in this psalm, it, it means to be personally ac- acquainted with. It means to know through experience. Another characteristic of someone who is a God-seeker is someone who has genuine genuine biblical faith in the character of God. You've got to know God's character and you know God's character through His Word, so you seek His Word daily. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. 
Another characteristic of God that I came up that's a God seeker is, is someone who knows that God delights in being sought after. Someone who knows that God delights in this. Proverbs 8, 17. Now that whole chapter in Proverbs 8 is, is speaking of wisdom. Okay, And so in verse 17 of Proverbs 8, it says, I love those who love me. He's talking about, I love those who love wisdom. And those who diligently seek me, wisdom, will find me. But we know that God is the author of wisdom. And then last I came up with someone who is quick to give God full recognition in all things. Full recognition in all things. I gave this illustration last hour. I taught this lesson during the Bereans class. By the way, if you're looking for a Sunday school class that you're not quite sure to settle on, you know second hour in here sorry is that the last time i teach in here terry okay so i shared this and and if, for those of you who know my wife carla she she works here on staff she's uh uh she's one of the secretarial uh ladies here on staff she will deny this and don't tell her this i said this in the last hour she was there you know she just doesn't remember okay but it was about 13 or 14 years ago. My wife and I were, were in line at Lowe's to check out. It was late in the evening. They were closing. This was before self-checkout, okay? So we're standing in line. We're probably third or fourth in line. One checkout lane open only. The person who was at the cashier was having troubles checking out. And I'm getting impatient. And I have this tendency, I can't do it anymore, but I have this tendency when I get impatient, pull out my car keys. There's no such thing as car keys anymore. They're those little fob things. So I can't pull those out. But I would pull out my car keys and just start twirling them on my finger. Well, my wife, knowing me so well, grabs my arm, pulls me close to her, and she whispers in my ear, God has a plan. And I kind of pull away a little and look at her in the face and said, I have a plan too. <laughs> she grabbed me even closer and whispered, I know you have a plan, but God's plan is always better. Okay? Someone who's quick to give God full recognition in all things. That's what a, a, a characteristics of a God seeker is. Uh, look at Psalm 105. You know, I'll never forget that. And so anytime I start to get impatient, I'm reminded that God's plan for my life in this situation is always better than mine. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Speak of all His wonders. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his, his wonders which he has done. His marvels and his judgments uttered by his mouth. When we look at Jehoshaphat's prayer that he begins to pray, we're going to see some of these characteristics in his life. In verse 5, he stood the, in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord 
uh, before the new court. And he says this in verse six, O Lord, the God of our fathers. And then he asked this question, but we know the answer. Are you not God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the, of the nations? And he knows the answer to that. Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? They have lived in it and they built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. For your name is in this house and cry to you in our distress. And you will hear and deliver us. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. They turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do before our eyes are on you. And then verse 13, I love verse 13. Judah stands before the Lord and waits. He stands before the Lord and waits. And I think there's lots that we can learn from this, but what stood out for me was the end of verse 9. The end of verse 9 says, you know, we cry to you in our distress, and look what he says. He says, and you will hear and deliver us. And that brings us to our last point that I think we can learn from this passage. Is that our God delights in rescuing his people. Our God delights in rescuing his people. I need for you to quickly turn to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. We won't belabor here. I'm running out of time, but I need for you to understand this and see this. In Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. It says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. In eternity past, God set a time where the second member of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, would be man's redeemer, to be man's rescuer. Before sin had entered the world, our God determined in his heart that he would uh, reveal his nature as a rescuer. And Jesus came at the exact time when the the Father had established before the world was even created. Verse 3 of Galatians 4 talks about that we were held in bondage to our sin. We deserved nothing but God's eternal wrath because we could never keep any of his standards. But the kindness of his heart... He chose to put his redeeming love upon those who would repent and believe. It says at the end of verse 4 that he came born under the law. Like every other man, Jesus was born under the law. Like every other Jew, he was under obligation to obey and be judged 
by the conformity to God's written law. But unlike any other Jew, he satisfied the requirements of that law by living a perfect life, a life in obedience to it. And because he lived in a perfect obedience, he was able to redeem all other men who were under the law, but not obedient to it, provided that they had saving faith in him. Our application to this point is, is really simple. It's for those in this room who are still under God's eternal wrath. Repent and believe. You have heard the gospel in this lesson. My challenge to you is to allow God to prove to you that he desires to rescue your heart, your soul. All right, let's turn back to Second Chronicles and we're going to fly by and finish up. And we see this great God who rescues his people. In verse 13, they stand and wait. In verse 14, in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon uh, Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of all those other people. In verse 15, he says, he says, listen all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because this great multitude uh, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz and you will find them at the end of the valley in the front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight this battle. Station yourself. Stand and see the salvation of, of, of the Lord on, be, on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. And so they respond. Jehoshaphat bowed his head and face to the ground. All of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they fell on their faces on the ground before the Lord. The only ones who were standing, it tells us in verse 19, were the Levites. In verse 20, they, they rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And this is uh, the El, uh, what we're looking at here, what we're talking about. And then in verse 20, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. And then he had consulted with the people. He appointed those who sang to the Lord, those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love is everlasting. Then they began singing and, pray, and praising. Uh, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon and, Mount, uh, and Moab and Mount Seir, who had come together, who had come against Judah, and so they were routed. And then he goes on in verse 23. I just love this. Uh, he says, For the sons of Ammon and, and Moab teamed together. They rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroyed them completely. And when they had finished destroying them, they turned on one another. And look at the end of this. It says, it says, and they helped to destroy one another. You know? We don't know how that happened, but we know that God did it. 
we know that God did it. Uh, verses 26 through 21, uh, 31, they talk about how they renamed this uh, the Valley of Baraka. Baraka meaning the Valley of Blessing. And then in the end, it talks about how in verse 31, Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 35 years old when he became king. He reigned for 25 years. He walked in the way of his father Asa and did not depart from it, doing right in the sight of the Lord. In this message, in this lesson, as we did this flyover, I tried to bring some application and some things that we can learn. And just as a reminder, we need to know that, that the relationships that we have with unbelievers is temporal, ex- external. And our purpose is to bring to them the word of the, God, word of the Lord, the gospel. We are to be his representatives, his ambassadors. We're called to be spiritual leaders. And we've taken a glimpse of what that looks like. And we need to evaluate our hearts where, there's, where that's at. We need to be God seekers. And I think we need to continue in our hearts and in our minds and just know that God is a, is a God who loves to rescue people. Join me in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word that we can understand these eternal truths. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would work in each one of our hearts and that you would uh, convict the person in this room who needs to be convicted. That you would encourage the, the person in this room who needs to be encouraged. And God, I pray that you would challenge us all to walk in such a way that we'd be reflective of our love towards you. We love you, God. We're so thankful for this day. We're thankful that we could meet together and understand a little bit more of who you are and how you desire for us to respond. Oh, God, be our God today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.